So this is uh, episode four of Pals with Bill Wadman, uh, where we have a treat. Haha, see what I did there? I like it. Yeah, uh, I, made a, uh, <laughs> I made a food reference. Uh, Bun Chem is my friend for years now uh, and has been executive chef at different places, and we'll get all into that. But he's like more into food, and he's my chef friend. <laughs> I guess I have a couple other chef friends, but you're my primary chef friend. Do you like being my primary chef friend? I, I like that. I, you know, it's always good to be number one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, Bun, you are from Pennsylvania, correct? Correct. Okay. Harrisburg. Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Yeah. But Chem is not a normal Harrisburg, Pennsylvania sounding name. Where's your family from? Well, my whole family is from Cambodia. Okay. Um, my grandparents where I got my last name. They're from Guangzhou, China. Um, they, my great-grandfather uh, migrate, immigrated to Cambodia when Mao Zedong was taking over China and he wanted to escape the communists there. Oh, that's interesting. So your family only went to Cambodia. You guys are ethnic, sort of ethnic Chinese who happened to be in Cambodia for a couple generations. Correct. So my dad is second-generation like Chinese Cambodian. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. And then your family moved over here with you because you were born in Cambodia. When did you come over? Uh, 1989. 1989. Yes. Okay. And your family was already there, right? You had some family that was already in Pennsylvania. Correct. So my grandfather, my three uncles, and my aunt were already in Pennsylvania. They had separated during the Khmer Rouge, my dad and his family. Okay. Um, so late late seventies kind of thing. Yeah, like yeah. late seventies, early eighties. So when my when you know it was all the when it was all done, the war was done. My dad didn't think that any of his family had survived until he got a letter a letter from the United States saying, "Hey, we're all here." We're, you know, we're going to try to get you over. Well, the fact that they found him was pretty impressive. Yeah, you know? most of the time, most Cambodians just went back to where they formerly lived. Oh, so they left and then went back to town and then, oh, yeah, is this guy here? Yeah, yeah, he came back last year or whatever. Yeah, Exactly. And then, you know, um, so then they had a letter and then my dad had, you know, was like, okay, so we have to go to Thailand in order to get right. to the United States because at the time it was still some like uh, political infighting yeah. and they shut down the border of Cambodia in and out because they didn't want anyone, you know, like spies or right. missiles or what have you to come into Cambodia in and out of Cambodia. Right. So they shut the border down. So what we had to do was we had to trek through the jungle and cross the border into Thailand. I was four. My brother was two. And we spent two Do you remember years- any of that? Uh, just a little bit here and there, not too much. I remember like being in the jungle. I remember like the smell of campfire still like, you yeah. know, it brings a little flash of memory because that's like one of the first times that, you know, like um, we had to set, start a fire like every night in the jungle yeah. there. And so, you know, one of the few when I smell like wood fire, sometimes it will like bring me back to like that time where we had to like, you know, follow a coyote through uh, the jungles of Cambodia and crossed the border into Thailand. And then right. we spent two and a half years um, at a couple of uh, Thai refugee camp. Um, and then finally, our visas, our, my 
uh, uncle's sponsorship went through, and we got a visa to come into the United States. To America, yeah. And we came, I believe it was still cold, so February, January 1989. Man, that must have been culture shock for you, going from basically a hot... I'm assuming in Thailand you were in one of the hot areas of Thailand. Oh, yeah. Going from hot Thailand to... Cold Pennsylvania. Wow, that yeah. must have been crazy. Like, where in the world am I? Exactly. Plus, I, all the normal Western stuff that you probably didn't see nearly as much of over there. Thirty years, you know, twenty years ago. I was so fascinated by everything when I came. Cars and yeah, you know, TV and snow. Like yeah. the first time we saw snow, I ate a handful of snow because it's like you know I've never witnessed snow before. So sure. you know, and also like all the cartoons I wanted to watch. Things you didn't have in a Thai refugee camp. Like, you had your meals rationed for you. You had water rationed for you. You had clothes. The clothes that you were wearing were hand down or sent over from, you know, America. And we were always so happy to get packages from our family. Uh, You know, my grandparents or my uncle, they would send clothes. They would send, um, you know, little toys or what have you over when, you know, um, they had a chance to. And it was such a happy moment. I remember like my dad like getting like a little radio and he was so happy about getting a radio. A little transistor battery powered radio. Exactly. A little transistor, you know, and he would like listen for like Cambodian news and um, things like that. So it was. So so your family (laughs) ran away from Mao in China and then had to run away from the Khmer Rouge in Pol Pot in Cambodia. Exactly. You know, that was a was bad like, couple of generations of <laughs> of running away from yeah, uh, yeah communism Despots, yeah. and despot. Yeah. Wow. So. Uh, okay, so you end up here. You end up in uh, uh, in Pennsylvania. Yeah. You're how old were you when you got here? Uh, seven. Okay. Yeah. So you're a kindergarten or something, first grade something first, around there. Well, I, they I was supposed to be in first grade, but they gave me like a math tests or whatever, and then I skipped that first grade and went straight to second grade. Oh, okay. So I was always a year younger than my classmates Oh, interesting. Up. Was that I, ever a thing? It was a little bit of a thing when you're like, you know, everyone's turning 13 and you're, you're still 12. 12. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you're just turning 12 and everyone's a teenager and yeah. they're starting their hormonal change thing and you're, you're still a little bit like, behind, yeah. Exactly, and when everyone started driving, you had to wait a year. You know, I had to wait till like my um, late junior year, uh, early senior. My birthday was June 20th. Sure. So, you know, between junior year and senior year was when I got my license. Right, right, right. And then I graduated when I was like basically 16. And you learned English over there? A little bit of English. They put me in ESL when I came. And luckily there was in Harrisburg, there was uh, the ESL teacher was Cambodian. Oh, so So he had both sides of it. He could. Yeah. yeah, So then, you know, that helped me a lot. And then by just watching a lot of TV and, you know, know, a number of my friends who are immigrants who learned English as a second language, so many of them. I guess because of the cultural dominance of American television around the world. Yeah. Learned from TV. Yeah. Learned by watching Friends or whatever, you know, like whatever it is, right? Right. So my dad always, you know, want us to watch Sesame Street because my of uncle's course. like, yeah. Sesame Street, that's how, you know, you guys should watch Sesame Street too. So like we would crowd around the TV watching Sesame Street for an hour. Yeah. yeah and that was, See, that was great. The children's television workshop at work. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I love PBS. Uh, okay, so there you are. You're a little kid in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, growing up with your extended family around. Yeah, we all lived in one house. On, oh, okay. Yeah, it was 2nd Street, Pennsylvania, uh, Harrisburg. 
And in that house was my grandparents, um, my uncle's family, and he had two kids. And then my uncle, who was at Penn State at the time, and my aunt, who was in high school. And then my uncle, T, um, he was a car mechanic. He went straight to – he didn't go to college or anything. He went straight to – But everyone found jobs over here and found careers and built a whole thing. Yeah. Is it a big? Is there a big Cambodian like uh, subculture in in Harrisburg particularly, or were you guys sort well, of? It's a little community. So what happened after during the Khmer Rouge when they got all, a lot of Cambodian refugees is that they would re, they would locate them like in a plate in like public housing somewhere. Okay, yeah. So like you know how the Lao like Lao, I believe Laotians were a lot of them are were located in Minnesota. Yeah, we got. Locate like we got um, situated in the Bronx, and then from the Bronx there were other opportunities, um, you know, to go. And the biggest community in the East Coast is uh, Lynn, Massachusetts, oh. and Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Oh, interesting. Okay, so they, it split the community in the Bronx to those two, and then from there it spreads. Like now, there's a big community in Lowell, um, Lowell Mass. Massachusetts, right? And also now a little community in Harrisburg. Interestingly, both Harrisburg and Lowell are sort of old school blue collar factory towns that sort oh, yeah. of were in decline in the 80s that you guys were moving into. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. But there was a lot. I The biggest thing that my parents did when we first started out, we came with nothing. Yeah. Um. So they worked at a chicken, uh, uh, chicken factory. Oh really? Yeah, it was a processing plant, like so, Tyson or one of the big companies, or um, it was called um, I believe it was called uh, it was Wellington Chicken. Farm. Okay, Wellington Chicken Farm. Wow. I worked there too when I was fourteen. I really? mean, my parents then found other jobs, but you know sure. they paid under the table, and I was fourteen. So you know they're like, why don't you get a summer job and pay for what you need? For school or your video games or what have you, you know. Yeah. So I worked, you know, at 14, 15, and 16, I worked at the chicken farm. What, what did they have you do at the chicken farm? So I did a number of things. Like being a kid, I was one, I was a catcher, which is like, you know, the chicken would come on a truck and then you would have to catch them out of the cage and hang them to be slaughtered. Wow. The other thing, since I had small hands, yeah. was to gut the chicken. I had, I was, my, my parents made fun of me calling me the chicken doctor because I had my hand up a chicken's rear end for like the majority of the summer. Wow. So I learned how to like quickly gut a chicken and we did about 500 to 1,000 chicken a day. So. Wow. Okay. Now, so we're going to get into what you do now because this is all fascinating right. backstory. Yeah. So do you think that your were you ever squeamish about any of that stuff? Was at it first. Ever, at first, okay. At first, just because it's like, you know, where I was catching the chicken to where they were slaughtering it was like very close. Yeah. And I had, you know, and that was like it's my- like I'm sending you guys to your death right now. Yeah. So, but I mean, I witnessed be- chicken being slaughtered before because for Chinese New Year's or Cambodian New Year's, my dad or my grandfather would, or my uncle- Go buy a live chicken. Yeah, and would kill a chicken, strain the blood, save the blood for kanji. And then we, you know, we would like uh, blanch it, take the feather off, yeah. and then roast it and have that as like a meal, like a whole chicken. Whole animals in, uh, during New Year, it means like good luck. Yeah. It means like, you know, it's a whole prosperous thing. So. It, that's all a very interesting cultural thing because in the West, most people don't ever slaughter anything. No. 
you know, like how many times, you know, I've never slaughtered a pig or a cow or killed a chicken. My, my extended family, my, my father's father owned a a wholesale chicken, Purdue chicken distributor Mm. in Connecticut. So like dead chicken, you know, cases of frozen breasts and that kind of stuff was in my life, but I was never far enough back to see the actual chickens being harvested as as it were, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I got to see from beginning to end, like, and then, you know, at the, in the morning we slaughtered and we, you know, um, processed, cleaned the chicken and then they would be hung for like a day or two for the rigor mortis to be done. And then you would like butcher the chicken in the evening. Oh, see, they they wait before they actually butcher it. Yeah. Well, you know, you... Usually when you kill something, rigor uh, kicks in yeah. and it tightens the meat up and it's no good for eating because it will be super tough. So you have to wait a couple of days for that meat to relax and then you can go ahead and, and butcher it. Okay, interesting. This is all right. fascinating. Okay, so, so so there you are, 14 years old, yeah. doing a summer job because your parents worked there years before or whatever. Uh-huh. Uh, did you, was food a thing for you even back then? Food was a big part of, you know, our, it's a big part of our culture, but it was a big part in our, you know, daily life too, just because we didn't have any money. So we couldn't afford to go out to eat. And what we ate was everything that our family cooked. So during like two, three o'clock, my grandmother would start getting dinner ready. Um, you know, my mom, if she's around, or my dad or my grandfather. That was start, her job, was yeah, to that have was dinner the, ready was for everybody. to have dinner ready for everyone. So, you know, rice was being cooked. And then um, being from Cambodia, we use a lot of mortar and pestle to make a lot of paste, like curry paste yeah. or, you know, we call it gruong in Cambodia. And is some of that kids' jobs of like, oh, yeah, here, oh, come. Yeah. That's the kid's job. grind this stuff down. Exactly. So the kid's job is to sit in front of that mortar and pestle and just like, you know, pound it to like, you know, into a pace. And grandma would be like, nope, not not done yet. Keep going. Keep going. And you would stand, you would be there for like a half an hour. And that was her 60 years earlier or whatever, doing that for her grandparents or whatever it is. Exactly. And But it smells so good. And then. When, you know, she finally cooked it, it's like, oh, you, you helped make this. Yeah. And it, made, it felt good to be like, you're sitting around, you know, and it's like, well, you know, he helped make this. Or also like shaving down coconut was another thing sure. that kids do because you can get really low to the ground. And the coconut shaver that we had was like a little um, like stool that you sit on with a prong out of it that had like a sawtooth edge. So then you would take the coconut and you would scrape the meat off. With oh, the coconut. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so and then you take that coconut and you soak it in water just a little bit. And then you take a cheesecloth or a towel and you squeeze just the squeeze milk the out milk it. out. And that's how we got coconut milk. We didn't buy coconut milk right. from a can. And then you My, still have the coconut for cooking. Yeah, exactly. So we that's how, you know, we got coconut milk and how my grandmother just knew how to do coconut milk. And she says it tastes better than the can, which right. I agree. Which, so as you were growing up with your grandmother, who was old school, old world, as it were. Oh, yeah. And your parents even, you know, who were adults when they came over. Oh, yeah. Was there any sort of uh, westernization of your food eating? Or was it always like, no, we're eating Cambodian food at home because that's what 
our family makes. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But then, you know, as a, an American kid growing up, you see commercials of like spaghettis yeah. and meatballs and, you're and hamburgers. school or whatever else. Yeah, and you're yeah. eating at school yeah. and there's, you know, hamburgers and stuff. So then we'll ask our parents like, hey, can we have spaghetti and meatballs? My dad wouldn't eat it. You know, us oh, kids Was, was he just like it. suspicious about the whole thing? Yeah, he was just like, it doesn't taste good. Like, really? Yeah, okay. he says the noodles doesn't um, sop up the sauce <laughs> enough and the sauce is like really sour and bland and he's like I'd rather eat like pho or like stir fried noodles interesting okay and he's like it's just not the same uh you know western noodles aren't the same as Asian noodles and he prefers the Asian noodles while my brother and I and my cousins would be eating spaghetti and meatballs rice over wheat noodles or that kind of thing it's also it's so interesting because it you know in, in the places that I've seen that you've worked it's a lot of combinations of, of different plate, you know, like different cultures, different kinds of food, all trying to make it. You, you sometimes think, Oh, maybe the answer is to take the best stuff of Cambodian food, the best Italian food, the best British, well, British food, right. the best French food, you know what I mean? And, yeah. and bring those all together. But you're basically saying like, even the thing that is kind of delicious from Italian food, your father was like, nah, it's not for me. Exactly. And yeah. To this day, I love spaghetti. It's like one of my favorite foods. Like, yeah. I crave it. And when I was in Cambodia this past January, the thing that I craved the most was like spaghetti and meatball or like yeah. a big juicy fat hamburger. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, but I'm in Cambodia where I'm like eating like yeah. amazing Cambodian food. And even if you could get it, it probably wouldn't be that good. I, my mother has been spending the last few winters in Thailand. Yeah. And you know. It's not the same. Thai food is great, but like. If you want, I just want a slice of pizza. Yeah. It's like you can, there's a place I'm sure that'll sell pizza, but it's not going to be very good. Right. You know, certainly not going to be what it is you're craving, you know. Right. And, you know? Or well, if you go to Bangkok, eh, maybe there's a McDonald's. All right, I'll go get a quarter pounder just to have that. And it still is not that. It's actually a little different. Like yeah. um, Kate, you know, my wife, yeah. she had a ham, we had a Whopper in uh, in Vietnam when we were at the airport. Sure. And it, the bread is just different. You know, and yeah. it's just a little, little different. And she tried to get like grilled cheese and it was just not the same. And we just gave up on trying to order anything like American, yeah. you know, yeah. um, in Southeast Asia. Stick with the amazing Southeast Asian food. Go for the best of that. And we'll have our fill of hamburgers when we get back in a couple of weeks. Correct. And that's the, f- the first thing we did was got hamburgers. Of course. Like, yeah, yeah, we, yeah. Yeah, we, yeah, yeah. we went to uh, Camper Down Elm and just got two juicy burgers. It was yeah. so good. <laughs> okay, so you so you, you you're you're a kid. Your grandmother's you're watching her cook. Mm-hmm. Um, is she and and obviously you're learning little pieces of it. Right. But were you just sort of even just kind of what even then sort of watching like what is she doing? Like I want to figure this out. Like show me stuff or or was that not even a thing yet for you? Well, it wasn't a thing yet until I was like a teenager, and then I really got into cooking, and also really got into cooking because my grandmother loves PBS and you know, hence Sesame Street. Sure. And, yeah. But also um, watching all the old school cooking shows on PBS was like a thing that we did, like the weird we, American and French stuff, like the Julia. Ch- Childs and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Jewish yeah. Child, the Galloping Gourmet, the yeah. Fugo Gourmet. Um, but, you know, our favorite was Yan Can Cook. Okay. And because, you know, it was like Chinese food. Sure. And, the, you know, the way he was so enthusiastic about making food. And, he, you know, this from start and then when he finished it and it looked so pretty and delicious, it's like, wow, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I got, I really was like, I want to do that. And then, like, in my teenage year, I really started to experiment with, like, cooking food and then started to learn some things from like, you know, my parents and my grandparents. So So, you took it upon yourself. 
Right. And then, and you know, they were always willing to like teach. So I would cook with my mom. To the, and I love cooking with my mom. And, you know, um, to this day when I go home, I try to cook with her. Do, do like, you feel like once. there's any, is there anything, I had an Italian grandmother who used to make this salad dressing, which was like really, it was like, you know, lemon juice and olive oil and some spices and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And it just had a certain taste. And she never wrote it down, and no one's mm-hmm. been able to replicate it. Are there yeah. things that your grandmother did that even now as a professional, you – I don't even know how the hell she did it. Yeah, she makes these amazing – so like for Chinese uh, – Cambodian New Year's, they're called nam som, which is a like sticky rice and mung beans and a pork belly in the middle. And then she wraps it in banana leaves. Almost like a sushi kind of thing. Almost like a sushi <laughs> type of thing. And then she blanches it. And then, um, and then we would like cut it into little um, rings yeah. and pan fry it. And they are so delicious with just a little salt and pepper. Yeah. I can't make it. I tried to make it at Taldi. It just <laughs> not. And I asked her how she did it. She does it. And, you know, she tells me I even made it with her. But then when I go and make it myself, yeah. it's just not the same. When you made it with her, did it come out the way you wanted it to? Oh, yeah. Because she was like, no, don't do that. Or like, yeah, 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 yeah. put a little more of this. Like, how do you know? I, it's just like. It seems like there's a lot. There's a lot more of that. And I don't know. Maybe that's a, a, a thing about generational thing of we're much more quantitative now of, no, 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 how, exactly how did you do this? What temperature were you doing it at? How right. much is it? I don't know. It's just that much of it, you know? Exactly. Because I think it's that's all like passed down family to family, word to word kind of stuff. You right. Know? And even my mom doesn't measure anything. She's like a tip of a spoonful. Well, which spoon did you use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. or like. Yeah. That uh, could be twice as much salt or whatever. Is it? Exactly. A, yeah. a, a ladle of fish sauce. Well, what size ladle did you use? You yeah, know? yeah. So yeah. she's. It's like, it's the same way. It's like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, but it always comes out very delicious. So you're a teenager, you're learning how to cook, you're, you're, yeah. you're hanging out with your parent, your mother and your, your grandmother, they're right. teaching you stuff, you're watching TV shows. Right. Where does it go from there? How do, how do you get into this stuff from there to when I met you? Um, and then I went to culinary school. So there was like yep. a culinary school rep that came and taught, like it was career day during high school. And up to that point, I was very music focused. I was in orchestra. I was in... What'd you play? Like violin. Violin, okay. Yeah. I played the violin and I was in orchestra. You still own one? I broke it chasing my cat when I was uh, 21 (laughs) one day. It like, it clawed me and I was like, oh, you. And then like, I, and then it's like crunch. I was like, ah. Whoops. Yep. Whoops. But it was a cheap violin anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, You know, it was. But I haven't picked up a violin since high school. Okay. Um. So yeah, but you know, I was in select choir. I was. I took a lot of music theory. I was thinking of going to school for for music, and then after during my senior year, you know, I've been doing it for so long. It just sort of bored me and become tedious. And I was like, I don't think this is right for me then if I'm already bored with this and I'm tired of it. Sure. So um, I was like, well, during career day, there was like a person from um, a culinary school and they, you know, was like talking about culinary school and like what you can achieve um, from culinary school. And so I was like, all right, you know, I think I'll go to culinary school. And my parents were just like, no, we don't want you 
working in a kitchen. Well, I was going to ask that because a lot of immigrant parents are very much like, you need to get a professional skill. Go become a lawyer. Go become a doctor. We didn't come all the way over here for you to be a cook or whatever. It's it's a cliche, I know, but that's yeah. exactly what it was. And yeah. it's like, my dad's like, why do you want to work in a hot kitchen? And not why don't you want to like sit down in an air conditioned room and, yep. you know, work on a computer? Like, or like you don't you, understand what we went. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, you know, like. It's so tiring. It's so hot. You know, why do you want to use physical, uh, you know, uh, why do you want to be physical with work than mental with work? Like, yeah, yeah. You, you can, you know. You're a bright kid. Use your mind. Exactly. You know, yeah. So I, you know, but we had like a big, like, you know, just big back and forth about it. And at culinary school is expensive. And yeah. You know, if I could do it again, I would have not gone to culinary school. I would really? have used, yeah, I would have used that money and come to New York and just like use that money as rent and board and and food. And go work and, on a line and, somewhere and go work for free somewhere and learn, like Danielle or Jean George or right. Le Benedan or one of those. They're always accepting free help, you know. Yeah. And I, you know, and I wish I would have known that I can take an apprenticeship route instead of. But when you're young, you're like, everyone's going to college. Everyone's going to be away, you know, in dorms. And so it was like, and I don't think at that, I was 17. I don't think I would have like the same mental capacity to uh, be focused enough, you know, to be in a kitchen that was very rigorous. Right, 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 right. So there must also be, I mean, I don't know what your skills were at the time, but I'm sure there's like a six month level of knife skills, basic cooking, you know, how to blanch, how to prep, how to do whatever it is. Like that must be a, you could do a six or 10 or 12 week thing where it's like, this is like the absolute basics you need to know. Right. Before someone will even talk to you to give you something to start teaching you, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, culinary school taught that. And it also taught a lot of like how to make stocks, how to make soups, how to make all that. But you're only doing it once or twice. You know, it's right. not the repetitive things that you, like in a kitchen, you, you do it like every day. And does culinary school tend to be very sort of French-based cooking or are it's, they pretty round, you know what I mean? Yeah, it's very French-based cooking. Okay. It's, um, you know, a lot of the knowledge and a lot of the soups and stocks and like methods and stuff. Well, from my experience, at least, it yeah. was very French forward sure. in, in the way that you cook. and Even the way uh, the kitchen is developed yeah yeah and the way the kitchen breaks down but you know what it is how kitchens are you know designated and at least in the higher yeah yeah uh you know uh upscale kitchen they can we can we just take a little parenthetical thing here for people who don't know how kitchens work okay can you give like a quick rundown of the hierarchy yeah 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 all right so do we want to start from bottom or or top let's say top okay top would be the executive chef so they, uh, they, you know, create the menu. They come up with, you know, what kind, what type of uh, cuisine. Yeah, if it's a fancy enough place, they're at the bottom of the menu. They're, they're, their name's there. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. And, you know, and that's, you know, the executive chef. Uh, below that is the chef de cuisine. Um, he is also known as, you know, like the chief of the kitchen. He is, you know, the, the executive chef comes up with the idea and he's running the pass. The chef de cuisine is the one that goes and makes sure it's the executor of right. the ideas and makes sure that everything is in place for that menu to happen. Mm-hmm. And then below him is the sous chefs 
that he would have. So they would be his assistant, the chef de cuisine's assistant. So they would, in a really big kitchen, they would have like two or three sous chefs manning different lines. There might be a pastry sous chef. There would be like a, a meat or, you know, um, butchery person. There would be like a vegetable sous chef who makes sure that all his, uh, all the things are done in these subsections. So, and then they would report to the chef de cuisine. And then um, under the sous chefs are known as chef de partie. So the chef de partie are like line cooks. So they are in charge of a station. So they are like in charge of the sauce or in charge of cooking the fish or butchering the fish or in charge of butchering the meat and cooking the meat or in charge of cleaning the vegetables and making sure, you know, they make purees and whatnot. Or, you know, they're the pastry uh, uh, chef. So if somebody orders orders 40, you know, whatever, filet of some fish at, at the thing every day, there's one guy making that fish for everybody. Correct. And he may make that part of the fish. There might be a guy who makes the vegetables, and this right. all gets plated and put together and then handed At out. At the pass, yeah. Right. So Wait, the pass? Wait, wait, what's that? Right. So the pass is where it all comes together. I consider the pass, you know, to be like this. It's like a holy altar of food. It's where the magic happens. Like, it's where all the components comes to it and then gets plated, tasted, and, you know, wiped down and then, and then it passes, you know, from the kitchen to the, the dining servers, room. Yeah. So that's why it's called pass. Oh, okay. Got yeah. it. Okay. And so, and yeah, everyone cooks different things. The chef would be the one, like a conductor, just like, okay, we're on this table. I need you to make me two fish, two, you know, two fish, two steaks, one octopus. Yep. And then all the other people would hear that and they would come with the component, like if the steak has mashed potatoes and gravy, the sauce guy would warm up the sauce for it. The person who has the mashed potatoes would warm up the mashed potatoes for it. The person cooking the meat would be cooking the meat for it, and it all comes together at the same time. Got it. And they have to communicate with each other, like, to hey, know, how long you got? Yeah, st- yeah exactly. Start right. making, finishing that sauce, getting the sauce boiler, whatever. Right, I'm almost done. the I'm steak's almost out. ready, yeah. Exactly, and then it would all comes to the pass, and then the, the chef de cuisine and the chef would plate it, or if the chef isn't plating, then the chef de cuisine and like a, a sous chef would plate it. Right. And you would want to work your way up to you, to the plating. Right. It's, so it's a little bit of a hierarchical army kind of scenario. Oh, yeah. It's very much like an army. There yeah. is, you know, it's all, it's a yes, no answer, short answer. There's no time to discuss anything. Right. No talking back. It's yeah. like if the order is given, yeah. you just follow the yeah. order. I said to beef. Like, what, yeah. is, what is the question? Like, right. Where's my beef? Exactly. Yeah. So it, it's very much it's very much like that because like any little kinks or any little mistake can tear down service. Trips up the whole line. Trips up the whole line, tears down service, and now you have angry customers and yeah. you have customers. Or and you stuff have, gets backed up. Or- get, gets backed up. Now you're sending, you know, you're comping things. You're, now you're just like working for free. Yeah. You know, and so you, you try. So like the order is the order and you just have... You just have to follow the rules of the kitchen. It's very much like an army. Yeah. And you work long hours and people are in each other's face. Temper flare up. Like it, it happens, you know. And, but as much as temper flare up, when it does like work well and it's running like a, a well-oiled it's machine. Be high. It, yeah, it's hot. And it's, you know, but when it works really well and it's, a, you know, like a well-oiled machine, 
it's the best feeling in the world. It's a buzz. It's a buzz. It's like the adrenaline kicks in and it's yeah. like this high and it's like, it, it feels really good. And by the end of it all, you're tired, you're sweaty, but you know, now you're like, let's go, like you just fought a battle and won. Sure, yeah, yeah. And you know, let's go celebrate and have, you know, we had a really good service, sales were up the roof, chef's happy, food looked great, customers super happy, good comments all around. Yeah. You know, servers making good tips, like, you know, yeah. it feels like a great, like a, a success. And it's I'd like, imagine that it, from the top, being the guy who's sitting there plating and tasting stuff, I mean, it's all about trying to figure out ways to get consistency. Oh, yeah. A consistently high quality. It's like you want oh, consistency, yeah. but you also want a high level of consistency. Oh, yeah. High level com- consistency and fast. <clears throat> right. Right. Okay. So, 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 I, so we're going to get back to your story in a second, but I have a question for you as somebody who just watches this. Okay. Um, restaurants start out and like right when they start out, they're trying to get the kinks out of it. Right. And then Mm -hmm. there's like a thing, I don't know, a month or two in where it's like, okay, the menu's working. People like it. All the, the stuff has been taken out of it and it's rocking and rolling for a year or something like that. Mm -hmm. And then inevitably there's like this slow draw down, right. Where things like start getting like, yeah, this is the same thing we've had before, but it's not quite as good as it was six months ago or Mm -hmm. whatever it is. It seems to be like this life cycle of a menu. Does that make any sense whatsoever? Yeah. I, I, I know it's not the ideal, but like it right. seem, seems to be what tends to happen at places. And, you know, the way to counteract that is to do a seasonal menu. Change the menu up. Change the menu up every season. Right. So that way it's fresh. The cooks are more into it. What happens when you have the same thing on a menu for too long is yeah. that the cooks gets bored. Okay, like, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, they get bored and they don't care as much anymore and then they become a little, you know, sloppy. So then so, it's overcooked or undercooked. Yeah, whatever. Exactly. So as a chef, you try to keep them, you know, um, try to keep them engaged and you change up the menu a little bit. You try, do fun things and maybe keep one or two things that, yeah. you know, like sells a lot. Right. But then you change out like different things just to keep it fresh, just to keep them engaged, both, excited. Both the, both, the, both the customers and the staff right. interested. Right. Both the customer and the staff. Yeah. Interested. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, a it's, good it's, restaurant will do that. Yeah. It's it's a fascinating thing just watching because you, you got to think you're making the same thing over and over again for six months or, yeah. or whatever it is. It's just like, how good can this pot? I mean, you'd almost think it should only get better because you've been doing it a hundred thousand times, right? right? You know, but then at a certain point, it's just like, no, they just get bored with with that and exactly. want to try something new. And you, and as a chef, you have to watch that and you have to correct it. Like you, you're the one that's like tasting it, and right. a good a good place has someone tasting the food constantly to make sure that it's still at a high quality. Yeah, yeah. But also, you know, speaking from my experience, sometimes I get bored of it. I can't eat another pretzel and chive dumplings. Exactly. Like, I'm, as I'm, good as I, those are. As good as those are, yeah. and I love them in the beginning. It's like, I, I ate so much of those things that like, when it comes to the past, I'm like, uh, again? And yeah. I would force myself to eat it, you yeah. know? And it's like, okay, it's good. And then spit it out. Yeah, it's like, okay, it's good. Yeah, it's yeah, good. yeah, it's yeah, good. yeah, yeah. So, you, so you do yeah. get bored of as things. far as keeping people in line. Is it is it is it is it fear or is it sweet talking? You know, like what, what's it's the, a little like, bit of both. Okay, so but you have to walk that fine line. Yeah, um, you know, and also I'm not the type of chef that like yells or like a Gordon Ramsay. Type there of are chef. some who do that. There, there are, and I've 
been I've worked under some too that you know when they're angry they're yelling they're throwing things right. they're kicking things they're right. slamming their fists down they're you know they, it, it I just feel that that type of management in a kitchen is just so unproductive yeah I like my cooks to be more to have sympathy of what I'm I'm trying to come across like. I don't like it like this because it's burnt. It's not what we do. Um, it's a little overcooked. Right. You know, you're better than that. We're better than that. Let's keep focus and let's yeah. try to, you know, let's yeah. try to produce the best thing that we can out out of ourselves. Yeah. Tony, you know? tighten it up. You're you're these are exactly. a little, these are a little overdone today. Okay. Yeah, and, and, and as long as cook, they have respect for you, they right. might go. Oh, sorry, Bon. I'll I'll see. You. Exactly. Sorry, chef. You know, but and the respect comes from like making sure that they're taken care of too. Like if they yeah. want days off or yeah. if they have some issues or whatever, you know, you're not yelling at them for yeah. it. Or if they make a little mistake, you're not down their throat about it. You're like, okay, you made a little mistake. This is how you fix it. Let's move on. Yeah. And you be, you know, you, you explain to them what happened with the mistake and how to not do it. And if they learn and if they grow from the things that you're telling them, then you get that respect and not fear, you know. Yeah. And a lot of my line cooks, I feel like has that for me, that they have that respect where it's like, I'm only looking out for you. You know, like I'm only looking out for you, but also looking out for the restaurant and making sure that we're the best that we can be, you know, yeah. and and they respect that. I, you know, I'm opening up a restaurant here in the fall and I have cooks calling me to join already, you know, and they're like, we'll drop because whatever. they like to work with you there. I, yeah. So it's like we'll drop whatever we're doing. Let us know like a month out so we can give our job notice and we'll come we'll come work for you. It sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Okay, so back to back to school. You went you went to school. Yeah. If you had it to do over again, you wouldn't have done it. I wouldn't have done it. Okay. I went back uh, to school, yeah. You you eventually graduated, you come up you come up to New York. No, no. I went back to Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, just because it was like home. Yeah. And I was like, let me see what I can do in Pennsylvania. But I ended up working in, you know, some mom and pop shop. Uh I worked at a holiday inn. I worked at an Applebee's. Oh, really? Yeah. What was well, it like working at like the like, real cookie cutter Applebee kind of place? Oh my goodness, it was horrible. I quit after two months. Yeah. Is everything like par cooked and they just like? Oh yeah. <clears throat> everything's, everything's ready to go. It's just a matter of heating it up. Exactly. And when it gets really busy, oh, I don't want to you know blow them up. But when it gets really busy, there's some microwave action that's happening with the snakes. Yeah. So you know, there's some there's some stuff that that's why I would never eat at a Applebee's or like you know I ate at a Friday's. But only because, like, it's like, well, we're in the suburbs, and yeah. this is fun. Let's I guess go. chicken fingers and, and yeah. honey mustard is what I'm having tonight. Right, and buffalo wings. That's yeah, what yeah, I ordered. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. You know, you can't, you can't really mess How bad can up. you screw it up? Exactly, yeah. you know. Right. And I'll, I'll get a steak, too, but, you know, just, just for the fun of it. Right. So. The weird thing about some of those places is that every once in a while you go and you actually are like, this is actually pretty good. Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you get a good batch of whatever it is. And exactly. Go, the last experience I had at... Fridays, it was actually like excellent. The yeah. steak was cooked well. Yeah. The potatoes were seasoned well. The uh, buffalo wings are nice and crispy. Yeah. I have a thing for the southwestern egg rolls at Chili's. They oh, make like this nice. chicken and you know whatever inside these little egg rolls, and they're like yeah. really good. And it's like okay, every once in a while, I want southwestern egg rolls. You exactly. Know? You know, yeah. you're not yeah. going to like every Friday or every, exactly. You know, every yeah, week, yeah, yeah, yeah. But like yeah. once in a while, it's fun. So, so by going to the doing the mom and pop thing, doing the big corporate thing, you can kind of figure out. Well, I like working in a place this big, but not that big. You know, right. that's kind of the thing. 
Right. And so, yeah, so I bounce around a couple of places in Pennsylvania, but still like watching my, you know, cooking shows and reading cookbooks and um, stuff like that. And I've ne- like never worked in a restaurant that had like foie or truffles or right. making like sauce from scratch or like anything, you know, from scratch. And I, it's like, why, why am I doing this if I'm just like opening up a box and like, did, did you, you know, think you were good enough or did you question whether you were good enough? Does that make sense? Uh, you know, a lot of people in that situation be like, man, could I make it in, in like the big New York restaurant? Yeah. Or is it just like, no, I'm good enough. I just, I just need to go do it. Right. Well, I mean, I was an executive chef for a mom and pop, the Colonial Lounge in Harris, in Linglestown, Pennsylvania. Yeah. And I loved it there. It was like my first executive chef job. Um, it was, you know, a lot of fun there. The people were really amazing. Um, I made some really good friends there. Uh, but it was, you know, buffalo wings, steaks, right. and, you know, crab cakes right. and prime right, right, ribs. Right, right. And, you know, that was everywhere in Pennsylvania. New American bar New food. New American bar stuff, food, yeah. you know. And I just couldn't. And then, like, as the executive chef, I was trying to create menu items, but I've never had, like, any good directions into it. And then it, it was always, and when I try to plate something or come up with something, it's never right. It's never as good or as good as I want it to be. So I'm like, I need, I need to learn more. I need to have better experience. Yeah. So I was like, you know, either New York City or Paris. And right. New York City is so close. Closer. Closer. <laughs> so that I, you know, I, I came to New York and I didn't have a job lined up. I didn't have an apartment lined up, really. I How just long knew ago a friend. was this? Um, almost nine years ago. Okay. November 20, uh, 2009. November okay. 2009, I came. Uh, the end of November, because I remember when I came, it was like Thanksgiving. So the end of November 2009, I came. My friend Clint um, knew of, uh, his friend Bill. He uh, had an apartment in Bay Ridge and had a room open. And so I, you know, went to live with him and he didn't, he's like, don't worry about the rent right now when you get to work and when you have the money, so it was very kind of Bill, you know, for him to, um, uh, give me that opportunity, you know, to live there while I was still trying to find a job. Yeah. And I trailed at a couple of places. I didn't know what a trail was. I, did, I never trailed to get a job ever. Wait, what's trailing? So trailing is like an audition basically for the kitchen. So you go in and um, legally it's, you're supposed to only be there for three hours. But most kitchen keeps you there for a whole, whole day. To make you whole, run a, whole a day. shift, yeah. Yeah, to make you run a shift to see what's going on. It also allows like you as the, tra- the trailee to, or, you know, to, or the trailer or whatever it is, as a trail to see if you like the place that you want to work, if it's food that you want, if it's the environment that you want to work in. It's a two-way audition. It's then. a two-way like, audition. Do you like this? Do you like the vibe? Can you keep up? Right. Do you, know, do, you know, do you know enough to be able to learn what we're about to teach you? That kind of thing. Exactly. And it's also for the kitchen because, you know, like you don't want to hire someone if they don't, don't know. It's just a headache. Right. If, especially if it's an, a more upscale kitchen. Like you don't want to teach someone how to cook from the bottom up. Right. Unless they're willing to work for free. <laughs> right, right. You're not right. going to pay for that. Right. You know, if they're willing to work for free, yeah, well, you come in, peel potatoes, Learn how to make pastas, you know, and then get your get your hands dirty and learn all the technique first, and then yeah. we'll start to pay you. Um, so that's called a stage. So a trail is like a day audition, 
a stage is like working for free and learning as you're working. How long does that usually last? If about you, a month, a month or two. Then they start paying you. Usually. Yeah, and then if they're if chef says, okay, you're good enough. Here, we'll we'll make you the basically you'll start as like a call me. Yeah. So under the chef de partie, under him is a call me, yeah. the call me chef, and he basically is kind of like the the partie's assistant. Like if he needs a case of uh, the veg. Chef de partie for the vegetable station needs a case of potato peel. The call me is going to do it. Got it. If during service he needs, you know, sauce from the walk in, the call me is going to go to the fridge for him and get the sauce, you know? So basically, uh, you know, you start as a prep, a stage, you work as a prep, you learn the basics, and then you get to be a call me. And then once you learn that station well enough, and the party leaves, then you get to take over his station. And once you get take over that station, you move on to other station. And once yeah. you learn every station, then you're what we know as a tornat, which is like um, a chef that does every station, yeah. that fills in on every station. Yeah. And then you do that for a while as a tornat. And then after that, you get you're promoted like your to medical a sous rotation chef. or something. Exactly. Like yeah. And then you become a sous chef and work under the chef de cuisine personally. And then once you get the ropes of how to order food, how to cost food, how to come up with menu items, how to, you know, plate food and how to like correct things when needs to be corrected, build your palate up, then, you know, then you can be like, okay, I worked as a sous chef for like two or three years at this fancy restaurant. Then you can apply to be the chef de cuisine somewhere right. and get your own, like a, work underneath like a, an executive chef. Uh, that is like you know really good, right? And then once you work as the chef de cuisine for a while, then you can like go somewhere and be an executive chef. All right, so you so you come in, you're auditioning all these different places, right? I and um, I and I'd never done it before, so like I had a call from Commerce Restaurant, and you know they he was um, a noob Yoshi who is a dear friend of mine and still is a very good friend of mine to this day. Um, he was a sous chef at Commerce at the time. And he emailed me back like, yeah, come in. You know, we'll, we'll do a trail uh, this day. And I, didn't, I was like, a trail? Maybe they just want me to like cook a couple of things or, you know, and yeah. follow them around and look at the kitchen for like 10, 15 minutes and do an interview. And little did I know when I came in, he was like, you don't have knives. You don't have, you know, yeah, you proper didn't bring attire. Your you didn't bring your kit. You didn't bring your knives or anything like that. It's like, it's okay. You, you, you can still cook, right? I was like, yeah, I can cook. And you, you can use, you know, um, other people's, which is like a big no-no. No-no, yeah, I was going to say. Right. So, but he's like, I'll, I'll lend you. I lend you a couple of my knives you can use, you know. and Just you don't can tell just anybody. And next time, bring your knives. Right. Next. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, so I was trailing for the meat station at the time. And while trailing at the end, like worked the whole day, at the end of it, he sat me down. He's like, I don't think you're ready to be like the meat cook here yet. Right. You know, I don't think you have like enough, you know, skills for it or whatever. Did you agree? I was like, okay, yeah. I mean, like. There was some things that I didn't know, like sous vide. They had they right. were doing sous vide. I didn't know about sous vide. Um, I never cooked like you know fish and like base. Uh, air, we call it arrosé. Like learn how to like arrosé properly, um, which is basically basting butter onto fish once it's cooked. Yeah, like, okay, you see, yeah. Like it gets all bubbly, um, or like you know cooked on a plancha before right. or anything like that. So, you know, I was like, oh, this is pretty new to me. And I was being honest. I was like, and then I was like, but I can learn. I'm willing to learn. You know, I'm yeah. a quick learner. 
And he's like, I like your enthusiasm, but I don't think you're quite right for this. We need someone to come in and fill in right away and like start working right away and just knowing, you know, and he's like, you know, no, sorry, maybe something else will open up and I'll give you a call. And I was like, oh, I just worked like 10 hours for nothing, you know, and I didn't even get the job. And I was like, all right. I'm going to be prepared next time. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm going to bring my knife kit. I'm going to bring, you know, proper attire. I'm going to like be in it and just, you know. So I think a week later, I got a call from Anoop again. And he's like, okay, the veg station just opened up. I think you're good enough to do the veg station as the chef de partie there. Yeah. It's called, you know, the, it was, um, so I was like, all right, uh, I can work, you know, veg station and um and so i came in and i was actually a call me for my my friend to this day mark who was the one of the veg cook there he was moving over to pastry but he wanted he was the veg cook there so i i was his call me for a while i had to like you know, did potato purees and sauce and blanch like tons of vegetables and peel tons of potatoes and did that did feel that. like purgatory or did that feel like oh wow this is this is a step I understand where this is leading so it's not that painful yeah that step that was it's like okay you know this is a step and yeah. I am learning and I'm paying my dues and exactly I world. didn't I didn't know how to blanch a pro- uh, vegetable properly I didn't know how to make proper potato puree I didn't know how to make proper sauces and stocks and sure. Things like that. So, like, now I'm learning it. I'm getting something out of it, even though it's long days. I'm really enjoying it because it's like, this is what I've always wanted to do. Yeah. And learning from, like, someone that is really good. Like, uh, the chef there is Harold Moore at Commerce at the time. And he is, um, he was the sous chef at Danielle and John George. And he was the executive chef of Montrachet. So, all these yeah, he's big, a heavy. so he's, he's a heavy hitter, you know? Yep. And so I was like, really absorbing everything. And the chef de cuisine, um, Samir, used to be the chef de cuisine at Blue Hills at Stone Barnes. So these guys really, like, know their stuff. Right. So I'm learning from someone that, you know, people who really know their stuff. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to put my head down, say, yes, chef, and just keep working and just, like, take whatever comes my way and just keep going and just keep learning and absorb everything that they have to teach me, you know? And they were, you know, they were very good at, like, training, like, cooks. Like, they were very right. good at, like, you know, this is how you blanch a vegetable. This is how you make the proper sauce. This is how you make the proper Literally stock. trial by like, fire. Trial by fire, exactly. Yeah. And then I got to, um, you know, I got to be the, the veg cook there. And that must have been exciting. That was exciting. When I owned my own station, I was like, yeah. yay, this is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah, here we go. Here we go. Yeah. And then, you know, any trail or stage, they would be my call me. And I was right. like, yes. So I, I had a couple of trails uh, and stagiaires that came in and was like, that work as my call me chef and they're friends to this day. And, um, but, and then I, from there, I moved to the pasta station and yeah. just all around the kitchen, learn how to make, you know, learn everything for like three years. And then after that, um, I was like, okay, I think I'm ready to be a sous chef. And I became a sous chef for Simpson Wong, who op- was opening up an Asian, like local vor, Asian American local vor uh, restaurant in the West Village, also a couple of blocks from Commerce. Now, was there was a little like, bit of like, ah, I'm coming home to Asian food? Yeah, I mean, like, I always wanted to, because it's all throughout my career up yeah. to that point was all Western, 
uh, French, yeah, Italian that's what food. I'm, yeah, that's yeah. What, yeah. So I was like, I really want to do Asian food. And I know this. I got right. I got this wired. Exactly. I have I I, I this is my background. And yeah. I'm excited. I want to do this like professionally. I want to cook Asian food professionally. So um I became a sous chef at Wong and learned, you know, a little bit of um Asian cuisine there. And then I moved from to Park Slope and I saw that you know, after taking the train for so long, I was yeah. so sick and tired of, especially living in Bay Ridge, you know, and Park Slope was a little better. But after moving to Park Slope, Dale just opened up, Dale Taldy just opened up his uh, restaurant in Park Slope like a week after I moved in. Now he was coming off winning something, right? He, or he, did, um, he didn't he win. Did well. he, he did well. He did well. Top Chef season right. eight. Yeah. He okay. was on season four and season eight. He was also the season eight was all stars, so he did really well. Now on, nowadays, on that, is that the kind of thing? Just a quick aside. Yeah, the TV show thing. You make a name for yourself, then you get rich guys, hedge fund guys who have money who will mm-hmm. lend you a couple few hundred grand to open a restaurant. Is that, is that kind of how that kind of stuff works nowadays? Where the, you almost need the name and the stuff in order to get people to give you money, or, or is that no? As long okay. as you work for like really notable restaurants okay. and as like a chef or a chef de cuisine or an executive chef, and you want to open up your own restaurant, it's like, look, I ran a successful restaurant. Invest in my in a restaurant that right. you know I'm opening up. Okay. So that's that's usually how you do it. Right. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. so you saw Dale was opening this place. Right, and then. I saw Dale was opening in this place. I, you know, I was like, why not? Let me go trail here. And I trailed there. And then he was like, all right, you want the job? You, you know, we don't have any sous chef position opening, but you can be a line cook. But I was like, you know what? Maybe that's okay because I need to be a line cook to learn how to make the food first right, before right. being in charge of And if the I am Asian good and it opens up, I'm obviously the next person because I've done the sous chef job. Exactly. Yeah. So then... So then I, you know, worked there for like six, seven months and Thistle Hill Tavern needed a sous chef. Right. So Which is one of his restaurants too. Exactly. So he's like, hey, I need a sous chef at Thistle Hill Tavern. I know it's not Asian food. It's American food. But you can do some Asian stuff there. But now you have some Asian background. You have this amazing background in like Western cooking. I think you would be a great fit to be a sous chef at Thistle Hill Tavern. And so I became the sous chef there and we, you know, changed the menu around a little bit, yeah. made it better. And, you know, it was met your uh, now wife. Was, yeah. And met my now wife there. <laughs> yeah. um, so then a year, about not a year, even like six months after I was the sous chef there, the executive chef there had a job opportunity to work with the Chuko boys, Chuko the ramen Shop. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he knew the owners from working with them at, I believe Morimoto. Man, this or, is all, it's, yeah. it's interesting. It's also, I know this guy. So this guy called me because he knows I can do the job. Yeah. And I mean, it seems very word of mouth. Right. The job stuff. Is that, is it, that the way it is? It's also because there's so many different types of people in the restaurant industry that yeah. if you know someone, if you know they're good, because some, most, some people are not reliable or they, we call them hacks. Like yeah. they talk a big game, but they can't, to actually cook. execute or yeah. cook, you know? So it takes, it takes, you know, a good word of mouth 
or like a recommendation goes a long way in the yeah. food industry. Right, right, right. Like a recommendation like, oh, I know this, like, hey, you're here for two years. You want to move on with your career? You want to be a sous chef somewhere? I got a friend who, you know, is an executive chef. Maybe you want to go sure. and trail there and see if you like it, and then maybe he'll hire you, you know? So so the, you get the executive job at Thistle. At Thistle six months <laughs> afterwards. How much the, did you change the menu when you took over? Um, Quite a bit. Quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, okay. I kept a couple of things, but, you know, the staples, like mac and cheese, spaghetti and meatballs, and like burgers. burgers. But other than that, you know, I, I changed it. We did some fun, like, throwback Thursdays where it was like, you know, I take, like, really classical, you know, uh, food and just serve it that night. Like, cockle van or, yeah. you know, beef stroganoff or, like, veal masala or, you know, just, like, super classic dish and just, like, do, like, you know, uh, uh, we sell it like that night, and that was yeah. fun. We did grilled cheese night. Yeah, we made. We, I had a lot of fun at this. All so you there for how long? I was there for two years. Two years. Yeah, okay. it was. It was fun. It was small. The crew was great. You know, um, we're making money. It was yeah. It was a it was a great it was a great gig. I really loved Thistle. To this day, I really loved Thistle, and it brought a lot of good memories. Not just for me, but for my wife also, and for the sure. people who used to work at Thistle. Like they would recount like you know times when we were at Thistle, and right. I still have cooks that wants to work for me in the future that used to work because with, you worked together there at, at, there at Thistle. We had yep. so much fun there. Like it felt since it's a smaller restaurant, it really felt like a tight knit family yeah and it it just it was such an amazing experience such a a wonderful little restaurant i'm sad that it's not there anymore right um but uh it it is like one of the best times in my cooking career that i've ever had was at thistle hill tavern but the restaurant industry though does seem like the only constant is change yeah because no one stays anywhere more than a couple years correct so so then you go back to talday yeah and then i and then um the chef at the time janine who is my friend uh, Dale was opening up a restaurant in Miami Beach, and Janine um, wanted to go there to open up the restaurant. She wanted a change of scenery. So she went to Miami Beach, and I became the executive chef of Taldy Brooklyn. Did it feel like, ah, coming home? Yeah, it did. It really did. It's like, I'm yeah. coming home, you know? And, yeah. Yeah, and now and I'm the boss. Exactly. I was a line cook when I left, and now, you know, yeah. the student has become the master. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. <laughs> type deal. Yeah. So then it was great to be back there, and I love Taldy. I love, you know, working at Taldy. It's like, I love working for Dale. I love working for the Three Kings. Um, you know, they are tough with what they want, but it's just that, you know, they want they want great like perfection and who who which boss doesn't want that right sure and I've learned a lot from them I learned how to cook from Harold and Sunir and my sous chefs coming up and I learned Asian food from Simpson and I learned some Asian food from Dale also but by that time I I was kind of like in my own already now yeah. like understanding flavors and understanding how to compose dish and things like that with guidance from like Dale, but he really taught me how to be a manager, how to be a chef, how to run yeah. a proper kitchen. There's, there's well. more to being a chef than right. telling how to people how to, than cooking. Yeah. There, there's a lot, there's a lot. There's, Especially there's, in today's world. You're yeah, exactly. You're their psycho, you're your staff psychiatrist. You're their father. You're yeah. their, you know, um, you're their friend. You're their, it's like, you're their plumber. You're their electrician. You're their, like yeah. everything, yeah. you know? And it, it's like, it's more than just cooking once you get to that stage. Like you, you're focused on so much more stuff. Like anything that goes 
on or wrong in the kitchen. It's like you have to know how to problem solve it. Yeah. Yeah. And like it's just like it's so much more than just cooking once you get to that right. to that stage. And you were there working what, six days a week, five days a week? Five to six days a week, sometimes right. seven. If a cook calls off, I would go in. For, you know. for how long were you there? Uh, I was there for two and a half years. Okay. Now, yeah. that's a long time for an executive chef to stay someplace or not long or um, about average? It's about average. Okay. It's about average. Now, Usually, they want five years from you at a place. Okay. I'm fascinated by – we're going to get back to, to, your, to your new thing in a second. But mm-hmm. before we finish up, the, the life of restaurant workers. Yeah. It's hard. Oh, it's tough. You guys are working weekends. You're working till three a.m. Oh yeah. You're you don't you don't get to see people because you're working nope. every weeknight and all you know all all of that that goes wrong. And then assuming the oh let's go out and have a couple of drinks afterwards. You're getting home at five six a.m. Right. Who and knows? You wake like up yeah, a little bit again. of the drug stuff maybe, which isn't oh, a yeah. good idea. You know no. what I mean? Like all of all of that. Right. It's got to take a toll. Like, is there part of people who just go, I love cooking, but I can't live this life. Yeah, there's a lot of people that just like, you know, are just done. After, they're just so burnt out. We call it burnt out. Okay. And, you know, like when you're, when you, you can see like the effects. Yeah, of, like post-traumatic stress or yeah, something. Yeah, burnt out. So then, you know, a lot of cooks, what they do is like they'll take like a month or two break or whatever. Yeah. But then the food draws you back. Yeah, it's yeah, like yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. that, adre- that, they chasing go sit on that the beach adrenaline. for a couple of months and then yeah, they come and back then you're and they're like, like, Oh, I miss cooking. I miss being in the kitchen. I feel <laughs> yeah. good at being that camaraderie that you share yeah, I was in the wondering kitchen. If, is, is that a lot of it? Is it sort yeah. of like this team mentality that keeps people there? It is. It's like this camaraderie that you have. And you don't want to let the other guys down or the other people down. That too. But also like, if you really love food and making food, yeah. it, it's like, it's just like a, a draw of passion. It's like this little, like, tick in you that it's like, oh, I just need to be in the kitchen and cook. Right. Like I'm, I've been out of the kitchen for a while and I go and work for free in kitchens just because like- Just you want the I just, buzz. I just want the buzz. Yeah. And I don't care. I just want to I want to get my hands dirty. Exactly. I want to cook. I want to be on the line. I want to feel the heat against my face. I want to feel like the stress and the adrenaline of like service. Yeah. I want to- I want to. I want the back and forth between cooks. You know. Yeah. I want like you know and like you you working with each other for so long, so you have to like like each other to some extent, and yeah. then you know, and then that create like this amazing bond between like cooks. But yeah. it also creates enemy. Like if you really hate someone's gut, then like you really hate them, and then you sure. hold that grudge. It intensifies and it's, everything. It intensifies everything, yeah. and then and as a chef, sometimes it's like. All right, these two aren't getting along, so I have to schedule them in different, you know. Yeah. Uh, or get rid of one of yeah, them. Yeah, or, or get rid of one of them. Right. Which one's better, you know? Or try to talk to them and see if we can work something out. And cooking in general, I mean, you're around flames, you're around very sharp knives. Oh, yeah. It's a high pressure situation. Like, oh, yeah. I had a knife pulled on me. <laughs> really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> like a chef's knife. Like a chef's knife pulled on me. I fired a cook and he wasn't, he wanted his pay and I couldn't, I, I wasn't HR. I can't just sign a check. And give it to him. And he said he wouldn't leave until I, he get paid. And I said, I don't have it. I can't get it to you. I don't, I'm not in charge of the money here. Yeah, go talk to the manager. Uh, yeah, go tra- talk to the manager or like wait till Monday and you can come grab, grab your check. And he was just not having it. And then he just started getting angry and screaming and just took a knife and was like, give me my money. Wow. And it took the manager to come by and snatch the knife from him. And it was like, come on, calm it's down. It's like in a let's, movie. Let's go. Let's go talk this out. And like, you know, the poli- someone called the police and... They came and yeah, so 
And and I'm sure you've sliced your hands open any number of times. Oh, more burns than cuts. More burn, burns than cuts. More burns it, than cuts. Is it? Is it? Oh, I forgot that that pan was hot and grabbed it. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you you yeah that too, or someone else put a hot pan near you, yeah, and, you and didn't they didn't it. and they didn't tell you about it. Yeah. Um, a lot of that, or like you're going so fast that. You know, it's like oil splashing on your hand yeah. or like, you know, you open the oven door too fast and now you're great. But you, you guys know. will pick up things, especially with a glove on, that I would never touch. Oh, yeah. Just pick it up and it's like, you know, two seconds in your hand and it's like, oh, my God, that thing was like steaming hot coming out of a pan with oil in it. Oh, yeah. And people just like pick them up, yeah. right? So you built like callus in yeah, your Yeah, I guess that's, I guess that's I think, what it is. I've been out of the kitchen for a while, but I think I still have it. I think I yeah. can still do it. It's 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 also interesting. Like I, you know, I have all these uh, uh, Cuisinart decent pans, like you yeah. know, good home pans, you know, yeah. whatever it is. And I'm like, sometimes I st- I'll stick stuff in the oven or whatever. I'm just like, why doesn't everything have those silicone handles on them now? Oh, everything yeah. should just come because they never get hot. They can go up to 500 degrees. Like yeah. it saves your hand. I'm like, I need to buy silicone handles for everything that I own just yeah. to like have something on there. You can never have it in the kitchen because they always get lost. So like, oh, is the that why they don't do goes that? Into the- trash and you end up just wasting money it's oh. better to just have towels it's, yeah lots of towels that's right. the thing right lots it's all of towels rags lots and towels. towels rags like that is like the sharp the biggest like high value commodity in a kitchen yeah um yeah your knives are important but like the things that like you see people scroll away i mean like bury and and hide you know it's rags rags and um sharpies Sharpies. Yeah, Sharpies and rags. Never lose sight of your rags and your Sharpie because they will get stolen and no one is, is and no one will be apologetic about it at all. Oh yeah, you left that there. I took it. Like, you know. Wow. Or like, yeah, I grabbed your towels now. It's dirty. <laughs> it's yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So you always have to like keep an eye on your towels. Like knives, like, you know, everyone respect the knives, but no one is everyone's like sees a kitchen rag. Like to this day, I bet I can go find my stash of towels. At yeah, they're right hidden now. away. They're, yeah, they're hidden away on in like a tile or you know in a drawer. Oh, that's sneaky. Or in like a, a rice cooker that no one's used. Or like I find them all over the place. When I was at Tali, I was like, "You guys, come on!" Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> but How about I mean, we just I get, get cubbies, it. and no one touches each other's cubbies, <laughs> right? But okay, so you leave there. You that was whatever last year. Yeah. You you were traveling. You were because you're planning on opening your own place, right? So I wanted to open up. Um, a Cambodian restaurant. So we did a couple of pop-ups um, in the fall and winter. And they went well enough. But I just feel like the neighborhood and I don't know if it's like the authenticity of the food. People weren't like they were into it, but it felt like a novelty. Yeah. You know? Because you were, I don't know how to put this. Going like hardcore Cambodian food and people right. didn't have the, the 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 taste buds for it? Exactly. Okay. Like it was like too smelly or too spicy. Right, or, right. You know, and like normal, like my, my wife, she is like, you know, my like, would like Western Your, people love Western this. barometer. Yeah. 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 She's my Western barometer. Yeah. And she's always like, it's too spicy or it's, so, you know, um, it, it felt like a novelty and maybe I'll I'll revisit that idea yeah um in a couple of years but now I have the opportunity of opening up a restaurant um, I'm working on a project I'm opening up a restaurant in the lower east side called Essex Pearl half of it um so I used to work with a seafood purveyor Aquabest okay. and the guys there we had since Thistle Hill Tavern we have really good relationship and once they heard that I was leaving 
they gave me a call and was like, hey, we have this opportunity to open up a restaurant and a market in a, like a Chelsea style market. Okay, got it. Half of the, the place would be a seafood market and the other half would be a seafood restaurant. And they asked if I would be interested in heading up that Running project. the restaurant. Oh, yeah. Are you going to run the, the sales too or just the restaurant part? The restaurant part. Okay, yeah. And so seafood. Seafood. So now it's in the works. We just, Which is not something you've done. I mean, you've done it other places in oh, yeah. pieces, but not right. like specifically seafood. Yeah, seafood. yeah, But I love seafood. Yeah. And I love working with seafood. Um, I love eating it. I love working with it. Uh, so it's very versatile. Yeah. Other, like, you know, like you can't pair chicken with pork or, you know, think chicken with beef or anything like that on the same plate. But with seafood, you can have, a cra- you know, crab meat on a steak. Right. You can have like pork with shrimp. Right. You can, you know, you can utilize seafood in so many different ways that it's like, it's amazing. Now, the, 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 the restaurant business, do you mind if we talk about the restaurant mm-hmm. business at, a little bit? Mm-hmm. The, I mean, obviously, prices of, of stuff, I mean, there's just the general market of, of the area or whatever it is. There's the rent you got to pay. There's right. the cost of the food, the cost of the whatever, like... Are, are, are prices really based upon all of those factors of like, uh, we got to, you know, make the nut of 10 grand a month or whatever the hell the rent is for mm-hmm. the place, right? And then we got to pay these guys and like we got to keep our co- food costs below 20% or whatever the right. heck the numbers are, right? Right. Is it really that analytical? Or it is. is it, okay. It yeah. really is. It, it, it's, you know, it's such a small margin to run a successful restaurant. So it's all in the booze? It's not really. Not okay. really. Because booze can be expensive also. Okay. Like, especially, like, beer and draft beer, they're expensive, too. People think they're cheap to get, but they're not, they're not that cheap. They're actually pretty expensive also. Okay. And wine. Like, they're, you know, they're, they're also a good cost. And, and, yes, they have a higher <laughs> profit margins than and food, food does, yeah. does, but you're still, like, you have to account for a lot of things. Yeah. So it is that analytical. It is that, like... How much did we spend on labor? How much did we spend on food? How much did we spend on liquor? How much is the overhead? How much? So then you end up with like, you know, a, a good successful restaurant is at a 5% to 9% profit Five to margin. nine, less than 10%. Less than 10%. And, and is there, you know, because people always say, oh, don't get the pasta. That's where they're making all their money and all that kind of stuff. Is there, is there more margin on different different there, plates yeah there is like well, the pasta is one yeah. of them is drastically is it, good for it's you guys good for yeah exactly it, it's um you know it costs it has a low cost to make but we can sell it at a higher right, right, price right. but if you have something on the menu that suddenly becomes more expensive and you got to pay a little extra for it you know avocados are in this thing and like oh, avocados are more expensive this week yeah i'm gonna change the menu well shoot we gotta you know we're gonna have to eat it for a few weeks while the we, avocados that's, are expensive no um Every every year it happens with limes. Why limes? Um, it's just the season and the growing season, yeah. but also it's like I don't know. It, it I feel like there's like a manipulation that happens with really. It. I, I I I'm just you know conspiracy theory. Lime here. futures. Lime yeah. <laughs> so I you know, but every year and it's usually like before summer and you know at it's springtime is like yeah. when they start to get really expensive. Um, a case can go from like you can get a case right now probably for twenty three dollars, yeah. but then like in the spring they'll be like one hundred and twenty three dollars. That much? Yeah, uh, and you would see it on the things like, oh, it's happening. All right, now let's think about ways to. And it was really tough at Taldi because it was an Asian restaurant. We used limes on like Constantly. almost everything, you know. Yeah. So 
you just have to find a way or you just eat it. Interesting. And then you just have to explain, like, this is why our food cost is high. To the boss. To the boss, right. It's like, our food cost is high because limes. We're not doing a bad job. It's that we needed six cases of limes and so we lost 600 bucks this week or whatever. Exactly. And that all went to limes, you know. Wow. Yeah. Okay. So that's why, you know, as a chef, you have to keep an eye on, on invoices. Yeah. The first thing I do when I walk in is make sure to check all my invoice. One, to make sure that everything came in. And two, to check all the prices to make sure nothing like that happens. And right, like, right. No, oh, wow. Nothing's way out of whack. Exactly. Like, and, you know, you kind of could project like seasonal product. Like yeah. Brussels sprouts will get less expensive as winter goes on. Sure. But super expensive like right now. Right. So, you know, right. once winter is done yeah. and all the product, it starts, and then you, you'll get, like, in the spring, it'll start to get expensive. Where strawberries now are $2 a bucket or whatever it is, right. where they're $17 a bucket in the wintertime or whatever. Ex- exactly. Yeah. So you have, to, you have to really keep an eye on, on that so you can make money. You and, can, and, and, and you and I came over, we, there's, a, there's a picture that I took of you with all the knives around your head, yeah, which yeah. everyone seems to like. Yeah. Um, You've collected your knives over years because you said that, like, you know, people don't touch each other's knives. That's right. like, you know, messing with a guy's sword. Yeah, exactly. So, you, yeah, you collect your knives throughout your career. I've, you know, um, used some knives as house knives now. Now that I'm opening up a restaurant now, I'm like, I need new fresh knives, you know? Okay, yeah. So now I'm getting, getting a couple new knives. Um, my mother-in-law gave me a gift certificate to a knife sh- uh, one of my favorite knife shops. So, um, Corinne, and I'm going to uh, that go place? by there. It's in, um, it's in Fidei. It's Warren and I forget. It's like right there by downtown. Downtown. Yeah. It's like Warren. Interesting. Something I can't. And they have, but, is it, is it brands that you normally wouldn't see other places or is it just, they, you know, the prices, like, why is it that people go to this particular knife place? They have really good Japanese knives. <clears throat> oh, it's Japanese knives. Yeah, okay. it's a Japanese knife shop. And, and you're pro-Japanese really knife versus German knife? I'm both. I'm pro-both. Okay. So there's certain things I'll use Japanese knives for, and then there's certain things I use German knives for. Yeah. German knives are nice, strong steel, and they, they keep an edge. Japanese knives are, like, more precise in, like, the way you cut. Like, you can really feel the precision yeah. of cutting. And for, like, nice fish or whatever, I like, like, you know, to use a Japanese knife to, like, fillet or cut them into strips or things like that. Yeah. So, um, you know, and it, you can go either way. Like, you can use a set of knives all from yeah. Germany or, you know, Switzerland or what have you. And you can use all knives from Japan. Yeah. The so. irony of that is that in the camera world yeah. that I'm in, it is largely Japanese or sort of German cameras, right? Yeah. But it's generally the Japanese ones that are considered more uh, cookie cutter. Uh-huh. It's hardy. It'll it'll work forever. The sort of you know the 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 Honda Accords. Oh yeah, yeah, of, yeah. of the camera world, right? Versus the German, which have been making cameras a lot longer. Yeah, you know the Japanese thing came like after World War Two, right. right? Like the classic thing where the Germans are the Zeiss and the you know the Leica right. and stuff from the early twentieth century. Well, the really good Japanese <laughs> knives comes from. Um, uh, schools of samurai sword makers. Oh, like, really? So they're yeah. like folded 27 folded, times? Exactly. Yeah. So they're made, like the really good ones are yeah. made by like master craftsmen and master blacksmiths that used to make uh, samurai sword until they were outlawed after yeah. World War II. And since they were outlawed, they start making really high-end cook cook, cooking knives and sushi <laughs> knives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, and you, if you look at one of them, they look like a Japanese sword with like yeah. the bevel and like the... 
you know, like the beautiful bevel and the beautiful like wash. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, to yep. own one of those is like incredible. People who, who people who are maybe listening who don't normally get to talk to somebody who actually knows how to cook. If somebody wants to learn how to cook, if you go to, you know, Sur La Table or, or one of these places, they're going to try to sell you every damn thing in the room, you know. Yeah. But you obviously need a very small central kit of oh, stuff, yeah. which is like, all right, these are your five essentials. Right. Like, do you have a, do you have a list like that? that yeah. That- so the five essential <clears throat> or like a couple of essential things yeah. that you need is you need a good chef's knife, mm-hmm. which is like, a, you know. Eight inch? Yeah, an eight inch to ten inch, okay. depending what you're comfortable with. Um, and that that usually can almost do everything that you need to do if you have one of those. And those are usually sharp all the way down to the hilt, or you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. They're usually all the way is sharp down to the hilt. I try not to buy knives that has that little bit of like lip at the end because yeah. they're really hard to sharp sharpen like later yeah. because it's like thick metal yep. at the end. A lot of German knives have have that. Is that for stability? Is that why they yeah, do that? It's for weight. And okay. Stabil- yeah. It's for the weight <laughs> on the back. So oh, that way it. It, okay. it chops things more. Like, yeah. It, but you can't then roll it all the way back to your handle sort of because that, that, that corner isn't really good for that. Right. You and end up staying towards the curve towards the front. Exactly. Yeah. So then, you know, you need one of those, a chef's knife. You would need a, like a boning knife. Okay. So they're like a little skinnier. The blade is a little more flexible. So you can really like fillet a fish or cut through ch- uh, around chicken bones or cut around, um, you know, big pig's bone or cow bones yeah. that you're butchering that way. Um, so a boning knife is something that you, you should uh, have. A slicer, which is, um, you know, a longer, thinner knife. And they're good for, like, cutting um, cutting thin slices of, like, beef or fish or um, vegetables or tomatoes or, or, tomatoes yeah. or yeah. anything like that, cucumbers, what have you. So a slicer, a serrated knife for bread. Sure. Um, You'll need a paring knife, which is like a small knife to like do peels or, um, you know, like cutting small things in halves are good to have. So you yep. can work with your hand and just cut things faster yeah. in halves. Of course, you can use the chef's knives for it, but it's like a little clunky sure. and you can go, I feel like you can go a little faster if you just have like cutting things in halves with like a paring knife. Yeah. Um, and then you should have a, a really good pair of kitchen scissors. I like Joyce Chen's. They'll cut through chicken bones. Um, they'll cut herbs or whatever. Um, just having like a good pair of like kitchen scissors is like a must in my kit. Yeah, that um, are used for kitchen and not for your kids' construction projects. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Joyce Chen is like my favorite. And gotcha. then um, you should have a, um, a rubber spatula and a wooden spoon. Right. Um, wooden spoon for making sauces. Like a rubber spatula, like a what my home ec teacher would call a rubber bowl scraper kind of rubber oh, spatula. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Not so, as, because a lot of times now they'll have spatulas that are made of the silicone or whatever it is, right. like an actual, like, pancake flipper. Right. You're, you're not talking about that. No, no, no. You're like talking about, like, a, a bowl scraper A bowl thing. scraper, yeah. like a rubber bowl scraper. Yeah. Um, a fish spatula, which is um, a spatula that is, that has, like, a curve on it. Okay. And it also is, like, it bends upward a little bit. Okay. And it has... Um, Whole, like little strips of holes like oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. going okay. through it. Yeah. So that way it can pick up a fish really well, but it also works really well as like picking things up in a pan yeah. or off the grill. Even flipping burgers Even or whatever. Flipping yeah. burgers, a, uh, a fish spatula is like a really good thing to have. Yeah. Um, I like a cake tester uh, just for like checking doneness. 
you know, a lot of people use a toothpick. Yeah. A lot of people use toothpick, but a metal cake tester, it also works as like a thermometer almost without having, you can have a thermometer, but what we do um, in a professional kitchen is we use this cake tester and we stick it in the middle of like a steak. We pull it out and judging by the heat of the metal, we can tell if it's, you know, it's it's like a pin almost. Yeah. So it doesn't like, you know, like a thermometer. It's like it, it pokes like a nice large hole into oh, your yeah, meat. Oh, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. And people notice. So, and people notice. And you let the juice run out. The the cake tester doesn't do that. Ah, it, it's the like, tricks of the yeah. trade. So then you just feel if it's like slightly warm, then it's medium rare. If it's super hot, then it's well done. If it's cold, then it's not cooked yet. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know? I, used, I had a guy I used to say, he's just like, when do you know something like a steak is done? It's like, well, does it look like food? You know what I mean? Like, it has to like, right. look like t- steaks you've seen before. Yeah. And as far as pans go, are you, are you a, 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 a... You would need a, non- a couple non-sticks <clears throat> yeah. just for eggs. Some people I like are very anti-non-stick. Eggs. Yeah, I mean, like, for eggs, it's good, like, for non-stick. Also, like, um, I like using it to um, do, like, pancakes. Sure. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, things like that. Uh, nonstick for breakfast food. For breakfast food, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I like nonstick for breakfast food, correct. Yeah. Or like if you're making, you know, a, a pan biscuit or something. Yeah, like yeah. nonstick is like really good for that. Um, and I like to, yeah, and then steel, steel pan is like yeah. my favorite. Yeah. Uh, my he, favorite, all clads. And you're not, you're not afraid of MSG. Oh, no. MSG <laughs> is amazing. <laughs> Make shit good. <laughs> MSG, make shit good. It's such a racist are, like background of you think why it is? it's you, bad. You, you it think, is. It's like the whole Chinese restaurant the, syndrome and all that. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, there has been so many tests, so many experiments, so many blind tasting. Yeah. It's like, you know, people would say like, oh, I'm allergic to MSG while they're eating a bag of Doritos. It's like, really? Yeah. yeah you know, yeah, or yeah. like, I don't like MSG, but I'm eating like, you know, McDonald's or Taco Bell. Yeah. It's like, yeah. They use MSG too, you know, and monosodium glutamate is just one cell off salt. Like, you know, yeah. it's, it, and it's just like, it's, if you eat too much of anything, yeah, it's going to be bad for you. Right. But if you, like, it's not like, it's not anything like, it's not going to give you cancer or anything right. if you eat it in small amounts, yeah. you know, it doesn't give you a headache. There like, was the big know, 70s, like, 80s backlash, right, against MSG. Yeah. I, uh, I call gluten the new MSG. I know I might offend some listeners, but, you know, I feel like there has been so many tests disproving gluten, like, sensitivity or whatever have you, the fad that that is going on. It's like, you know, I feel like gluten is the new MSG. Yeah. If you actually have, uh, what's it called? Like, yeah, yeah, that's great. But Yeah, that's crazy. But 80% of the population does not, is not sensitive to gluten or whatever. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like... I get it if you have it, but don't say you have it when you come to my restaurant. So we would make sure, extra sure that, you know, you're not going to get any gluten in your, in your food. It's right. like, you know, and then that makes it like, it's, it's like crying wolf. Yeah. 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 You know, it's like crying wolf. So yeah. it's like, come on, really? I get it's a dietary, <laughs> I get it's something you don't want to eat, but don't call it an allergy. Right. It's like, I prefer not to eat like egg whites or I prefer not to eat garlic. I prefer right. not to eat. Yeah, you know, or I, I guess you know, Heather is allergic. Yeah, to garlic. my wife but that is, is actually allergic that, to garlic. But that is a an allergy. Allium yeah. is an allergy, like yeah. it's an actual allergy that we know of. You know, that has been tested and that we we know it's to be true. Yeah. So, um, but like gluten isn't, and it's like if gluten is 
it's no one in a third world country has a gluten allergy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah, ask yeah. any Cambodian children if they have any gluten allergy, or Cambodians if they have any. There's gluten like, can we just allergy. have some food? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's like you, it's such a like. You think it's a Western thing? Yeah, Western thing to to be like even vegan to be vegan is very privileged. Yeah, Western yeah, yeah. Thing, you know, fascinating. Yeah, because I, I, it was it angered me when we went to Cambodia and this girl had a vegan card in Khmer. A vegan card? Yeah, so it's like I don't eat this. Like in 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 Khmer, oh, just right, to in show them to show them like please don't put this in my food. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like you're it, you're in Cambodia. You're in eat Cambodia, what they serve you. exactly. And they're like these people are making like less than a dollar a day selling food, and you're like giving them this card, being this like picky eaters. Like if they can eat food, they would like you know yeah, yeah. eat all the food. But you have the privilege of. Being picky about what you eat. You yeah, know? you had you had frogs legs over there. Oh yeah, it's delicious. What else did you have? Weird. Do you eat the bugs? Do you eat the like fried crickets and? Oh, stuff? I love crickets. Grasshoppers are good. Crickets are good. Um, tarantulas are delicious. Tarantulas. Yeah, they taste like soft shell crab. Really? Yeah, they're delicious. <sighs> You're not. Are you gonna serve those at your restaurant if you ever open your own place? Oh, maybe. Maybe I'll I'll do like a little bug. You know, not like as a dish, but maybe as a garnish. My friend um, Joseph Yoon, he does like bug dinners, and he, um, you know, he has dinners where he serves like dishes with bugs in them, which is amazing. Brooklyn Bug Project or something is what he. Um, yeah, I don't know if I'm down with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's high in protein. It's great. Uh, Fun. Thanks for coming over. This was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun, Bill. Uh, we'll uh, we'll bring you back after you open, and, and we can talk about that. Yeah, we'll see. You know how it goes with the seafood market, and maybe we'll talk some seafood. Okay, seafood is seafood. It is. Uh, thanks, everyone. We will talk to you soon. Bye.